Hey folks, I am Ryan Goodman, and you are listening to the Beef Runner Podcast. Join the conversation and find all my content at beefrunner.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram as Beef Runner. Hey guys, Ryan Goodman here with another Over a Beer Series episode on the Beef Runner Podcast. Really excited for our guest today. We've got Dr. Kami Ryan from Bayer Crop Sciences. So Dr. Ryan is a social scientist, and we're going to be diving in a little bit deeper into what that exactly is. But I think you're really going to be interested in this conversation that we're going to have today, talking about how we deal with disinformation and how that leads to all the misinformation that we deal with in agriculture advocacy. We talk about a paper that Dr. Ryan wrote addressing GMOs specifically and the disinformation campaigns that have gone into perpetuating so much misinformation when it comes to this topic. And Dr. Ryan gives some really good tips. Unfortunately, I think the people that really need to hear this may not hear this episode, so I encourage you to send it to them. But really focusing on, you know, how do we have those conversations? It's not just the facts, and we need to build those relationships. And how do we do that on such tough scientific conversations? So I really encourage you to listen to this, share it with somebody that needs to hear it, and let us know what you think. You can find me, Beef Runner, on social media, and you can find Dairy Carry online as well. So let us know what you think about this conversation on disinformation with Dr. Cami Ryan from Bear. Yeah, I already opened my beer. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, oh well. So, well, welcome to another Over a Beer podcast. I'm Ryan Goodman, Beef Runner. And I'm Carrie, Dairy Carrie. And this week we have another guest, Cammie Ryan. Cammie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, everyone. Cammie, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Moscow Mule, and so vodka, a ginger beer, a slice of lime, and some fresh mint from the garden. Yum. That sounds delicious. I like a ginger whiskey, but tonight I've got Avery Brewing Company from Boulder, Colorado, Stampede, Golden Lager, a little uh, Colorado spirit tonight. What about you, Carrie? Spotted Cow, the classic. (laughs) Is that a local beer? Yep. It, you were in Madison this winter sometime, right? Like yes, when it was really, yes. really, really cold and we didn't get to meet up. But we have New Glarus Brewing in Wisconsin. New Glarus okay. makes more beer than some states produce, but they only sell their beer within our state. Really? Yeah. Wow. Consumption rates are pretty high in Wisconsin. <laughs> you could say that. Wow. Now, well, you're, originally, there. you're originally from Saskatoon. Yeah, well, from Nipwin, but yeah, that's the bigger center, yeah, around there. Saskatchewan. I yes. think that Saskatchewan and Wisconsin, that Midwestern kind of thing all flows together when you're in the middle of the country, no matter what country, right? Mm-hmm. So we drink a lot of beer. <laughs> well, and we did too, because that's all you did, right? And if you lived rurally like we did, you spent, well, as a teenager, you spent time driving around on the back roads making sure sure that your hair was big enough and that you were drinking beer and boys and boys my thing so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's familiar yeah it really is <laughs> i met my husband cruising the wash which was like east washington avenue in madison so you know oh. i i get it <laughs> it's a love story i love it no we actually didn't like each other when we met whatsoever we dated each other's friends yeah oh, <laughs> yeah interesting you know life happens Yeah, we've been together for 18 years, so I guess it's mostly working out. I would say so. (laughs) All right, so Cammie, welcome to the podcast. For those who don't know you, who is Cammie Ryan? Cammie Ryan. Cammie Ryan is 
Canadian living in Missouri now. I work for Bear Crop Science. I'm social science lead. I joined uh, Legacy Monsanto back in 2014. Before that, I was a public sector researcher and I was working at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. So um, I'm a social scientist and a lot of people go, well, what's a social scientist? Because it seems kind of abstract. Well, social science actually is an umbrella term and it covers a lot of disciplines, anything from sociology, psychology, rural sociology, law, rhetorics, communication, you know, all of the uh, liberal and uh, humanities, liberal arts and humanities. But my background and my social science background is, is applied to agriculture. And social scientists, no matter what discipline they work in, they're interested in relationships. So relationships between people, relationships between organizations, relationships between people and organizations, or in my case, I'm interested and always have been interested in my research revolved around, much of it is revolved around uh, the relationship between the public or society and how they view science and modern agriculture. So that's kind of been my area where I've kind of focused in on and specialized in. I've been in agriculture for, gosh, almost 30 years, and um, that career has evolved over time. But for the last 15 years, a lot of my work has revolved around exactly that, looking at public perceptions of science. Yeah, so I, I think we've crossed paths when I went to visit the former Monsanto building after it had transitioned to Bear when I was there in St. Louis a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. What leads like a agriculture technology science company like Monsanto or Bear to have a social sciences department or work going on? Well, it's interesting because I'm the only one there like me. I, I have an answer as to what leads Monsanto or Bayer to something like this. And the answer is the internet. <laughs> well, that's true. That's a big part of it. It's interesting because I think 10 years ago, someone like me wouldn't have a job in a company like Bayer. But things have changed a lot over the last 10 or 15 years, especially as we know out there, social media and so forth. The real basis of all of it is, is we live in a world where we've got great science, great technology. We see it all the time. It's all around us. It's in our roofs of our homes. It's keeping us up when we're sitting on chairs. Like we've got engineers, we've got plant scientists and so forth doing great work in agriculture. But just because all, we have all of this great science and technology, it doesn't mean that society really accepts it or wants and so companies that are science-based, like Bayer and former Monsanto, I mean, that's what they're about. They're about the science. And they started recognizing several years ago that there were food and agriculture conversations going on in these social media spaces, and they weren't part of it. Yet they were part of the process of how the food gets grown up there. So I suppose partly that was why I was brought on. But I've done a lot of work around social network analysis, understanding how people work together and how those network effects impact their performances over time. But the real big thing was public perceptions and trying to get to the bottom of those things because just because you have scientific consensus around something, around a technology or a science, doesn't mean you have social consensus. And what we're understanding is that you might have all the great science in the world, but you might not have the social license to actually use it and to mobilize it. So like 5G and COVID? All of those. <laughs> yeah, all of the conspiracy theories, all about that. It, and it's funny how things end up overlapping. They, they tend to overlap over time. And that's what you notice because at one point, you know, 
agriculture was agriculture and medicine was medicine, but now we're seeing things kind of cross over. The whole underlying piece to all of this, of course, is there's a lot of disinformation out there. But my role with the company is interesting. It's not only me kind of going out and trying to understand the work that other social scientists like me are doing and how I can, how I can bring that knowledge back into the company and we can learn from it and so forth, but also trying to develop better messaging, better way to communicate with people, understanding those things. Because I think all organizations, it doesn't matter if you're a university or a company or whatever, you get path dependent in how you do things, or you may take things for granted, just sort of like we did with communicating around GMOs at one time. We just thought, this is a really great technology. End of story, right? We, we don't have to talk about it. But yeah, you do. You do have to get out there and talk about it. And the interesting thing is, even though communicating and talking seems to be a normal part of human behavior, it's not always easy around complex technologies and science. Right. It's really difficult. And, and did you work with Janice Person? She was actually the first guest on my podcast. Oh, yeah. Episode one. Oh, Janice is great. Now, Janice, she worked in the other division. It's so funny because a lot of people think because there's a few of us, a handful of us from the company that were really active on social media. But for the most part, we probably didn't see each other very often because we were in different organizations. I'm in regulatory and scientific affairs. And Janice was in corporate engagement. So she was in another arm. Our paths did cross because they do in some ways, but we didn't work together directly. So we were in different teams, but our work was always complementary. So awesome. Before we get too far into the science, I did want to ask you, so I've worked in Southern Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, British Columbia. What's it like moving from Canada to St. Louis? Oh, wow. Okay. So interesting story because my husband and I, when we, so our kids are grown. So we left our grown kids in Canada. Good to clarify that they're grown before you just say that you left your children in Canada. Canada. <laughs> we left our grown children in Canada. Can I leave my children in Canada? Is that an option? Well, you could ask my daughter. Maybe she'll take them. Yeah, she's got one. May as well have a couple more. So we thought actually it was a really good time to go on a bit of an adventure. And my husband is an adventurer. I had three job offers at the time from three places in the world. One of them was in Sweden and he didn't want to go. The cowboy didn't want to go to Sweden. Imagine that. And uh, I said, well, there's an opportunity in Missouri. What do you think of that? And so he says, well, give me a couple of days. I'll do some research. So he came back and these kind of decisions that you make when you're moving away from family and friends to a new country, you don't make them lightly. And I mean, I was going from being a public sector researcher to working for Monsanto. Right. The devil. Yeah, there, there, there was a leap there. But the work that I was doing, I was really excited about it. And I really thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to go, you know, I've been studying this whole thing about perceptions and Monsanto is like the lightning rod of everything bad about agriculture. And I thought, wouldn't it be the best social science case study of a lifetime to go and work from the belly of the beast? What could be better? That's a great way to take my career to the next level. So I was hesitant at first. But then I got all in and I was really excited about it. But I had to, you know, talk my husband into it. And he um, he went off and did a little bit of research. And he goes, well, it's an agricultural state. And I said, yes, it is. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we did it. And we moved here 
uh, well, I got here in December 2015. He came in February 2016. And we bought a little farm, got our horses here, our dogs, and we've set up and we really like it here a lot. And is it different? Well, yeah, it is a little bit different, but you're coming to the Midwest really from the Midwest. So it, there's a lot of similarities too. So it wasn't a huge leap. I think probably if I had to say the biggest leap that I had to make was going from a university setting to a corporate setting. That took me a while. I bet that transition would have been difficult. It was. And I, I underestimated that. And I underestimated how hard it was going to be to leave the grown children behind. Like I just sort of thought, oh no, this is the perfect time to do this, right? And I just wasn't thinking about it. And I'd never really lived that far from my kids before. So, and I'm feeling the pain of that right now, as you know, because my daughter just gave birth to our first grandson and we can't see him so that part of it's been more of a struggle lately so I feel I really do thanks okay we're not going to go too far into that because that'll cue waterworks drink won't be the first time Carrie's cried on the podcast um I'm just saying there was some tears in your eyes that time too bucko anyhow Tell me, Kimmy, what is the the difference between disinformation and misinformation? Okay, that's really interesting. So misinformation really is, it can be a product of disinformation. Disinformation is intentionally created misinformation, and it's designed to misinform. Misinformation is something that you might get from your aunt, but she, you know, when she shares it with you on social media or on Facebook, but she doesn't realize it's misinformation. She thinks it's true and accurate. So there is a layered piece to between disinformation and misinformation. I find the most interesting, well, no, they're all interesting, but disinformation is really interesting when you start digging down and you get to understand that there are people, vendors, organizations out there that intentionally create misinformation so that they can derive value from it. And value can be anything from just getting likes comments or actually uh, generating revenue from it. So that's kind of an interesting piece of it. But disinformation can become also misinformation because it's shared. It's shared by people who don't know that it's disinformation. So it gets processed that way through the networks. So Plandemic came out and Plandemic is a very obvious disinformation piece. But when my neighbor shared it, that was misinformation. She was sharing it without intent to deceive. Without intent to deceive. So it's, right? yeah, exactly that. And and the thing is that that's where it gets fuzzy because it's almost like you go, oh, well, I didn't know. So then we pass it away or a, a meme comes along and we'll go, well, what's the harm, right? You know, see, these are the pieces of mis and disinformation that cumulatively can really have impact and has social and economic costs but people will kind of dismiss them. And this is what is the foundation. These are the, this is what's become the commodity of what I would argue is an invisible economy called the attention economy, right? So attention is a scarce resource. We only have so much of it. So vendors out there are looking to try to capture our attention. So the more provocative that information is, the better they capture the attention. And you only have to look at Plandemic to see how much it's circulated. It's over and over and over again. It was people that generally, I feel, are smart, sane people sharing it. And it's like, I don't know if it's just we're all going lockdown crazy. Mm -hmm. Or it was just so well done and and people just so much didn't like the situation they were in that we are all in right 
know that they were looking for any alternative to being something than what it was but I, I thought that was really interesting how that played out I think it was really frustrating for me I you know I see and today when we talk a little bit about disinformation as it relates to GMOs um, which your paper was on but we see a lot of people that are agriculture advocates and they're always fighting against activists saying no trying to fight this disinformation or misinformation on GMOs and then they turn around and share the same thing right yeah, a lot of them were sharing the pandemic video saying, I can't believe how really frustrated because my like, guys, we fight science every day through ag advocacy. Can't you recognize it here? But then I also recognize if we're searching for answers. I've talked a little bit on this, my Instagram stories here lately and, and a couple of videos that I posted there, but there's so much uncertainty that we're really frustrated because nobody has answers. And maybe that pandemic was that taking advantage of that opportunity to of people looking for answers. That well, I have to believe actually that was in the works for some time and probably, well, I, I, I don't know, right? I don't know any more than anybody else. But to me, you just don't roll out. It's probably pretty tough to pull and compile all that together, roll it out in a short period of time. So I have to believe that it was, there was something either it was planned and it just happened to come along at this exact right time or whatever. So I think that it was meant to be, but if you start listening to Plandemic, they use all the right words. There's some very, very compelling language that disinformation vendors and conspiracy theorists can use to really entice people into believing things. And just because you, you as an advocate know that GMOs are good for the environment and they're, they're good for food production and safe and so forth, doesn't mean that you can't be swayed by another one. I mean, I've been tricked before. We all get tricked. I think what's happened over the years with me, and you guys probably are in the same mindset, you spend so much time looking at mis and disinformation and, you know, pushing back on it and learning that you learn about your own biases in the process and you go, oh, wait, this is how I lean. This is what I think. This is where I would go. So let me just pull back from that a little bit and let me see if I can look at this again and see how I feel about it. And what happens is you have a buildup of what I call, and I'm supposed to be evidence and science-based, but it's, it's like a gut feeling. You, and I'm sure you guys feel it too. You just go, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. And again, I've gone and I've followed the rabbit trail and I've looked and I went, oh no, it is true. And I've been surprised. You know what once surprised me? Skittles. Feeding cows. Skittles. That one? Yes. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, that yeah. Totally it seemed like crazy. There is, there is no way that that is true. <laughs> and it was. And it was true. And, and I read your article. And here's the other thing that pushed me that I knew you already. I knew your work. I trusted you. I only had to read that one. Right. Like, do you know what I mean? I only had to read that one and I was good with it. And I find myself, that's how I sort information now. Because like you said, yeah, I mean, I spend way too much time sorting information. And what I've found is I sort by person. Uh, this person shared it. I can trust that person. But that has bitten me in the ass a few times too, because we make mistakes. Anyone can make a mistake. Yeah. The idea that there's money to be made behind disinformation is, is something that I've always kind of thought about. And, and again, it goes back to my belief that your job is just the coolest. If I could have hung in college, I would be doing what you're doing because I find it absolutely fascinating. But the whole capitalization 
uh, trying to get attention. So you have clickbait stuff. And when you look at the media, you never have like a story, local farmer did everything right. Because mm-hmm. that's, nobody's going to click on that. And you'll never get, oh, uh, local scientists did everything right, especially if they work for a corporation. Right. And and it's the same thing on Facebook. The mundane gets nowhere. Mm-hmm. The truth gets nowhere. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the, as you put it so nicely, the disinformation, or as I put it, the bullshit, bullshit, yes, just spreads yeah, faster than lightning. And it's such an uphill battle. It is. And, and it's going to continue to be like, we have to come to a level of acceptance that this is something that's going to always be there because we are cognitively built that way. That's what we do. We are attracted to the bad stuff, the compelling stuff as consumers of information. We lean on what we see out there in social media, we automatically assume that whatever comes up, that it must be true and accurate because I saw it on Facebook. I know that's corny and we hear that and cliche a lot, but that's a lot of what the research has said is that people often just think it's, they, they go to neutral on it, right? Right. So they'll believe it to be true. I think some of the best creators of disinformation know exactly how to tap into the human cognitive habits. They know where to um, nudge people, how to incite them, get them angry. They know how to time it. Those are the very best ones. And some of them are just disinformation vendors and and it can just work because we are human beings and this is how we respond to things. I think of it as there's these moms in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. They really don't care one way or another about GMOs or farms. They just want to feed their kids good food, but they just see enough headlines. They never even click through to the links, but they just see enough negative one line, one line, one line that instead of being mom in the middle, they start to move. Well, again, it's easy because they're busy. Their first response is to protect the nest, the family. As it should be. Yeah, as it should be. And if there's any inkling that there's something unsafe, then it's probably easier for them to just not consume that thing than it is to try to learn more about what this Mm -hmm. thing is. So that's why negative labels work really good, like GMO free and so forth, because people can go, okay, good, putting it on the shelf again, I'm not going to buy that. Right. So is that like not saying this is disinformation, but the labels that might say antibiotic free or steroid free chicken, poultry? Well, hey, I'm not going to spend time diving into that, but oh, it, this is free of that. So that must be good. Right. They're not lying. The label is misleading because your assumption when you see something as XXX free, your assumption is, well, XXX must be bad. So therefore, And when you think about things um, about hormone-free or antibiotic-free meat, we know how the system works and that there's no artificial hormones used in, in poultry at all and in pork production. And in beef, we know that by the time it gets to the market, if there has been antibiotics used, it's out of the systems. Like, I don't know the U.S. system as well as I know Canada, but I know that they do these random testings and the livestock producers and and, uh, the processors, I mean, it's like 99.5%. They're good. It's rock solid. But that's not, that's how people are. They want to put things in boxes. It's just easier to have a simple label. And the label really, it's a 
it's a it's a virtuous signal. It speaks to people's emotions, and so of course they'll migrate towards those things because it's just easier. I think where where the decision might be tough is when it comes to the cost. Like sometimes that will move people. Economics will kind of shift things. Like if it's too expensive, they might not go that route. But yeah, that's definitely a piece of this. Labels are a part of this whole misinformation piece. It's what's driving everything. Like we want to vilify GMOs. We want to vilify glyphosate. We want to vilify this and that, the other thing. The reality is those things are just a symptom of other problems that we have, social and economic problems. You know, one of them is missing disinformation. And the second thing is we kind of got a broken litigation system, as far as I can tell. No, we do. We do. (laughs) Yeah. I just think that there are other things that when we're talking about concerns that people have, say about GMOs, when I have a conversation with someone about GMOs, and I, I mean... I've been in this gig for a long time, so I know where it's all at. And I don't want to bore them with data, and that's not how you enter a conversation anyway. But what you need to do is you kind of got to go back and go, you know, I hear what you're saying, but let's talk about misinformation. Like, let's take another entry point into this conversation because I think when you do that, all of a sudden you're opening up that conversation to include things that are more nuanced because it's never just about that one thing. It's about a bunch of things, right? And dis and misinformation is a huge piece of this. Like, we've been working on this mis and disinformation thing for years. We all have in our own way advocates out there trying to work and trying to tell the good story about modern agriculture for years. So we understand misinformation and disinformation. We get it. We know there's nothing new about it. But it's all of a sudden being lifted up in a whole new way now with COVID-19. So what? 2% of the population is actually involved in food production in North America, right? So as a society, we're geographically and generationally removed from the farm. We have no farming memory. So when you only have, when something disinformation or misinformation impacts 2% of the population, people can ignore it. But when you got COVID-19, and all of a sudden, it's, it's not impacting you and your family from a direct health perspective. It's impacting you from a social and economic perspective, which we're all dealing with right now. Then all of a sudden, they're going, oh, disinformation. So maybe it's an opportunity for us as advocates to really kind of get out there and talk about, not about the thing, not about GMOs, not about pesticides specifically, but let's talk about the cost of misinformation and what that does to people. I have a blog post idea now, Kimmy. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. So on that note, and I guess, so we've been talking about some of these topics and some of the paper that you'd sent to me was monetizing disinformation in the attention economy, specifically looking at the topic of GMOs and one of those costs that you were looking at in the paper and kind of looking at the the cost of this disinformation was at the risk of good technologies. Yeah. So not just them being delayed, but possibly some of them being shelved. And we're talking about like technologies that could save populations. And so we're talking about golden rice, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're talking about things that are devastating countries or specific commodities, specific crops that we see every day, such as bananas and oranges, right? So this disinformation is not just, uh, well, people bought this one product or the other, but really has a cost to like the science and maybe the future of our food. I got invited to Bear in Germany and we got to cross the border into the Netherlands and toured um, some of the veggie houses before the veggies houses weren't part of that. And they were talking about the spinach and they were like working on bolt or or bolt, whatever, and spinach to keep it 
from doing that. And they said, yeah, we could probably fix this with GMOs, but people don't like it. So we're doing traditional breeding to try to fix this problem in spinach. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, that's silly but okay. Like I get it, but also it doesn't make sense. Well, and you know, regulatory costs has gone up and the uh, efficacy of the testing around everything is excellent. And it always has been excellent, but because the process has become so politicized, then the time getting to the market is longer. So all of a sudden what you have is you have just big companies that can actually use these technologies because they're the only ones that can afford to navigate the regulatory system to get them to market. And that's the real unfortunate thing because there is probably a lot of direct-to-consumer products and like vegetables and so forth where people would really love to have them. But the companies, the small and medium uh, innovative organizations that are actually developing some of these food products can't because they can't afford to navigate the system. That, that to me is probably one of the biggest problems too. But to your point, Ryan, in developing countries, there are whole communities that rely on staple crops that like cassava, for instance, they grow food to feed themselves. So it's a self-sustaining uh, agricultural production system and they're losing crops to virus, but then they have a virus resistant cassava there, but the political will is not pushing it out so that these farmers can actually use it. So that's where it's another tragedy. The vandalization of research trials, that's another thing that is costly and really unfortunate because what the research trials are supposed to do is try to figure out, is this what we want to do? Well, you just ruined it. We don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of activities around it that create a lot of different kinds of costs to societies. I think probably what happens is you've got to buy for, I don't know, call it a bifurcation, but, but you got developing world implications of some of this stuff of disinformation and misinformation. And you've got first world implications of dis and misinformation. But sometimes the first world doesn't really recognize what's going on in the developing world. And I think that we're missing another piece of the puzzle there. We have to open up our eyes and recognize that as a global community, when it comes to food, we have to help each other out. So this impacts everybody. Yeah, what comes to mind, I'm picturing a couple of stories that I've heard in the past where some of these crops were being just destroyed by pests in Africa those subsistence farmers, they're growing food for their families. And had they been able to implement GMO technologies to address these problems, you know, they could save the communities and being able to save that income. But then I'm thinking here, and I'm drinking a beer from this county is Boulder County, Colorado. There was a lot of this misinformation started by disinformation on the topic of GMOs. And then it came to a vote in the county yeah. to ban GMOs from being grown in Boulder County, Colorado. I remember that. Yeah, that has implications. These folks in town, you know, had that idea. They wanted to, let's keep those things out. But then that has waves, not only in Boulder County, Colorado, but all the food that might be coming into that county. We see a lot of that in California. I don't want to pick on Colorado. So we're not always picking on California, right? Right. But I think those are two examples that come to my mind. And, and would that be accurate in kind of the, some of the situations that come from this? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, you could cherry pick a number of examples of what has happened over the last 20 years with all of this. And it makes me wonder. I remember I was sitting at a boardroom table. This is back in like 1997 in Canada. And I was like wet behind the ears and I happened to be brought in to take notes and at a meeting and this meeting had the head of the National Research Council and Plant Biotech Institute and a whole bunch of people around some corporate and, and academic people and we were talking about genetically engineered canola in particular because it was the first thing out of the, the shoot in Canada and 
they were talking about labeling even back then. And I'm sitting there listening and I'm just absorbing all of this. And there was discussion around positive labeling. Well, we should just positively label these things because we're proud of them and we know they're really good. And of course, the pushback was, and I think an overarching decision across the board, not just at that boardroom table, but across the board, is that the cost of doing all of that didn't make sense at the time. And I often wonder now, looking back on how much this has really cost us, if we could add it all up, which I'm sure we can't, the opportunity costs even, I just wonder if we would have maybe done things differently back then, if it might not have um, doused some of the flames that we've had to deal with over the years. So as I was reading this, something that came to mind is scientists are bad communicators. So are farmers. Yeah. How can we get more of yourself, of a Kevin Folta, and a Sarah Place? Yes. How can we get more of you out there communicating? I mean, I spend my, my work life is spent helping people to be stronger communicators. Mm-hmm. What's going on in the scientist community to help the scientists who are doing the research to communicate in a way that will combat those sensational headlines, those things that appeal to emotion? Well, we, I mean, we have to empower people because the thing is, is that it's not necessarily, some people are really, are naturally really good communicators. I think Kevin Fultz is an excellent communicator. He's gifted. He, and I, I mean, I've known him for years. He's always been good at communicating. He knows how to talk. He knows how to take something complex and communicate it in a way that a broad audience can understand. Not everybody can do that. And there is an art to it. And I think there's a science to it. Just let's step back a bit and also remember, like scientists, they remove themselves from societies to observe them. That's their job. Like that's what I do, right? Like, and here I am, I have the biggest conflict of interest because I observe human behavior and I'm a human. So, whoo, that. <laughs> But that's our job. And sometimes scientists, for the most part, pick those jobs because they like being autonomous, just like farmers do. So say just like farmers, (laughs) they're very similar in how they, you know, they pick their vocations and how they migrate towards those things. And the thing with communication and what really works today now more than ever, I mean, we talk about storytelling and all that, but relationship building is so important and you really have to be a people person and you can't necessarily just learn it. So you can equip yourself with all the talking points. And I see this, you know, working in the company, we've got lots of talking points about different technologies. I use that a lot because I'm not a plant scientist. So I need those talking points so I can understand it better. But you have to have more than that. You have to mobilize those talking points with a narrative and it has to be authentic and you have to be able to build relationships with people. And it's not a natural process. So what we have to do is not force all the scientists to get out there and speak, rather find and empower the ones that have a natural inclination towards communication and ensure that we support them. And that's the other problem with universities is they don't necessarily have those support mechanisms in place. So a lot of times the Kevin Foltz's of the world, they're kind of just mavericks and they're kind of doing it on their own. Most are, in fact, I would say. They do it because they're very passionate about it. When I started in advocacy, I really thought that everyone should tell their story. Every farmer should get out there and tell their story. And now, no, no, you guys, just no. There are some really bad people out there telling their story. And I appreciate that their story is there, but 
and then I appreciate the different voices, different tones connect with different audiences. I get that, but some of you guys need to shut up. Just putting it out there. Those who maybe are not the best communicators should maybe empower those. Yeah, and I think that there you go. We're back to this being both an art and a science because there's timing. How do you work with them? Like, like I don't even know what the magic elixir is to get get the right people in place, but. There is this other piece of it. I do notice observing over the years that if there's a voice that I'm a little uncomfortable with or I don't love or a storyteller that I don't love, there's 10 people who really love it, love this person. So I sit there and I'm back to this point, Carrie, where you just kind of, you alluded to it, is that there are different, there's baritones, there's basses, there's sopranos. We're all kind of different voices. I think that the real trick is to just ensure that we're all singing from the same song sheet. That doesn't always happen, but I do find that we need diversity of voices. We need diversity of individuals. We've got to be inclusive in how we bring in and engage and empower communicators, whatever our organization is. I think that that's important. But I think people have to be driven by passion, a love for what you do. Because I will tell you, I would have been fatigued out of this a long time ago if I didn't really at my core believe it was the right thing to do. That's what moves me. That's what motivates me. Amen. Yeah. And I think as experts, whether it's a business imperative, so you have a farm and you're trying to protect the interests of your farm, so you're out telling your story or whatever, or your company, and there's a business imperative to get out there and engage and communicate with different audiences. I think when you are an expert in your area or in your field, and you know something, I think you also have not, you not only have the business obligation to do what you do, but you have a moral imperative to also engage and communicate, especially in the day and age that we live in with all of this misinformation, because we know that misinformation is not going to go away. It's going to continue to grow. By 2023, we're going to have 3.4 billion people on social media platforms. This is just growing. So the channels are there and it's not going to go away. So we need to step up. We need to step up. Those of us that can, we need to do it. Through the years, I've had a lot of advocates that may work for companies or universities. And the response has often been, hey, I don't feel like my employer is empowering me. So having worked in public and private sector, do you have any advice for those people that are science fluent that want to be advocates and how they might address that? So I will tell you what I did because I felt like I was all alone and I was up in University of Saskatchewan. I was basically some, um, no one knew me. I didn't know anybody. And so social media actually connected me to a broader network around the world of other people that were in the same position I was. That's how I met Kevin was online, like the whole bunch of communicators. And so once you connect up there, that's where your resources are. I found that I didn't get my support and I didn't get resources from my immediate from the university because they just weren't there. They weren't there yet. They weren't looking at this. They didn't think it was important. I think they're starting to now, but we know how things can move quite slowly in those spaces. So we'll see what happens with that. But I found that what was really powerful for me was talking to other people that were trying to do the same thing I was. So I think extending yourself out there to those different networks, through those networks. And I mean, it's so easy to do it now. You know, you can just sit back and you can sit on social media. You can ask one person that, you know, hey, do you know a few people I can talk to about this? It doesn't take long to kind of start 
pulling together those threads and pulling together uh, the fabric of what you can have for a foundation to build your communication strategy on. And everybody is so different, right? Their experiences are different, the disciplines they come from, their life experiences, how they can shape their narrative is different. So it becomes almost like we're novelists, we're script writers, we're casting directors, like, like these are the ways you have to think about things. Because all of a sudden, when someone comes to me and says, look, I've got this conference coming up, and we really want to go into this topic, I have to think about, okay, who's the audience? And what kind of knowledge do you need? What kind of expertise? And what kind of delivery? Like, you know what I mean? How someone delivers their story is also really important. There's no cookie cutter approach to this, which makes it difficult, but which makes it fun too, right? Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, which I am. (laughs) It's a challenge. It's fun. But then also getting different. Here's the other thing that I think has been really powerful because a big part of my job has been to connect unexpected people in unexpected places. So my job, which I've loved, is that I brought social scientists in to spaces that they've never been in before. And I've brought scientists into social science spaces that they've never been in before. When you start connecting those dots and you just kind of sit back and you go, okay, I'm organizing this symposium, but I want you smart people to kind of do your thing. That's where the magic happens because then they start talking and then they start building us. Some of them go off and they co-author something. They might do a mainstream media article. They might do a study together. Things happen and we cannot solve complex socioeconomic problems in silos. We have to break those walls down. I don't think we can solve anything in silos. No, we can't. I think we get comfortable in those silos. We don't want to, but it's that cusp there. That's where that innovative engagement, that's where that magic can really happen is when you get people together that truly are unexpected because their disciplines are completely different. But guess what? When they sit down and they talk for half an hour, they realize, oh, I see where the connections are here. Because once you find the connections, then you're developing a more nuanced response to maybe a problem around, you know, anything from food production to perceptions of a particular technology or, you know, market barriers or whatever you're dealing with. We got to continue to do it. I got to tell you, well, and knock on wood, I shouldn't say this right now because who knows what happens, but I know that I'm going to have a job for quite a while because of what's going on. Right. And if I don't have the job, someone else like me will have this job. <laughs> right. you know, that's just the way things are. We've shifted in that. Our language is changing. We're understanding that we have to understand that we can't just do science and science alone. Science and society interact together. And so we have to be cognizant of the social aspects out there that impact what we do. And that goes back to farming too. We can't just farm and expect mm-hmm. everyone to just shut up and eat. Right. I've had the theory for a long time that we wouldn't be in this position today if farmers 20 years ago bothered communicating what they were doing. Probably because, yeah, there's been a lot of changes over the last 20, 30 years. Right. And if we had just farming in general, taken time to listen to consumers' concerns, explain what we were doing way back then, then it wouldn't have been like such a surprise to people where we were with technology. Because I think the surprise factor, oh. 20 years ago, I was uh, in my first season where I got to drive the tractor during hay hay cutting. Yeah, shut up, baby. (laughs) Ryan's a kid. That's fine. We all know that. Yes, (laughs) we know. Don't rub it in. 
Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, if we had bothered to communicate with our customers at the start of all this, at the start of use of technology, at the start of things changing from the bucolic red barn to the farmers of today who have all the, the good values that were instilled in us from previous generations, but who also tie in the best of what we have today in technology and, and science and information. It wouldn't have been so shocking to people that we're not out here with overalls and pitchforks. We're out here, you know, with Bluetooth and GPS. And you absorb. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of, one, one of the most shocking things that I heard once, and it takes a lot to shock me. Like you, you can't say a lot to me that throws me off because I've heard everything. But one of my friends, she's my friend, but she, she has an interesting perspective on things. And, and I'm not going to go into detail on it other than to say, she said to me once, Cami, you know, there's no science in your kind of farming. And I went, What? Like, usually I can respond to whatever someone throws at me, you know, when they come at me, oh, GMOs are bad or whatever. And I went, are you kidding? And I'm thinking, like, to me, that threw me right off because I thought, how can you watch a farmer, doesn't matter what he's growing or how he's growing, how can you think that there's no science in that? That, that was a little mind-blowing to me. So what we have is we have this divide, and it's a cultural divide. The consumers, and we have those that work in the industry to try to meet demand. But here's the thing. Even if we would have been able to foresee this, if we had a crystal ball to see what was going on, how hard would it have been 20 or 30 years ago to go, guess what? This is going to happen, and we need you, Farmer A, to go out and do this. Probably as hard as it would have been six months ago to know that there was a global pandemic about to happen. I just think this happened the way it happened. I think what we have to do is learn from this and try to do better because we're going to have new generations of new innovations, new science, new technology, new products. And we have to think ahead of those things. And that's what we're trying to do at Bayer. It's, it's really good. We're starting to look at or we are looking at what our pipeline is going forward. You know, I've been pushing and a couple of my colleagues have for really understanding, okay, this is what we got coming out then. Let's think about now. Let's start talking about and foresighting what we can expect, you know, moving forward. Let's do it now. Let's not do it when we launch the product. Let's do it now. So plant the seeds before you harvest. Exactly. And it doesn't mean you're going to knock it out of the park. But at least if you take it and do that kind of foresighting exercise, you can build in, you're building an anticipation into your model of what you're doing. And you can maybe anticipate some things along the way and then respond to them better and come up with better plans or strategies. So, I mean, that's kind of where we're coming from. And I, I, I mean, I hope that, that that's something that we can make work too. Oh, awesome. You have my wheels turning. Oh, good. Mine too. Before we wrap this up, speaking to a lot of those people that are farmers, ranchers, people involved in the ag industry, um, they're trying to share our stories, address some of this misinformation that comes from you know, maybe this disinformation and trying to recognize that. What tips would you have for them in engaging in these stories? Knowing that I think we covered a little bit earlier, facts aren't sexy. Nope. What tips might you have on maybe engaging in those conversations and trying to address some of these things that are out there? Well, uh, don't leave with the facts and the data. And that's a science communication too. That's a big thing. 
But I think the big, one other big thing is just always prioritize the relationship. So if you're having a one-on-one conversation with a neighbor or um, a family member, you're at the hockey rink or whatever you, you're doing, just elevate the relationship. At one point when I started doing communication, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, there was a real push in the industry for the conversational win. And it made me uncomfortable way back then. And I didn't love the language. And sometimes it's just normal. Like when we're hit with a question like, oh, there's no science in farming, your back gets up. And then you just kind of sit there and think, okay, you're thinking about the next thing that you want to say in response to that. And we're defensive. I think just focus on the relationship, elevate the relationship and remember that it's a conversation. It's not a conversion. One of the best things that I gifts I've given myself over the years, because I think I would have fatigued my way out of all of this is I give myself permission to walk away from a conversation that is non-productive. And you have to do that. Otherwise, you will not sustain the activity at all. And I think one final piece of it is we often are confronted with an issue, say GMOs or pesticides or whatever. When you're going into a conversation like that, remember that that is the symptom of the issue. The underlying baseline issue is disinformation, misinformation. And I think you got to change the point of reference. Like when someone approaches me about safety, about glyphosate or something, rather than go through the litany of facts, I might come around and I might say, well, you know what? I remember when I was in my teens in the seventies and I was in a farming community, there were dust bowls and you don't see them anymore. And I'll tell you why you don't see dust bowls anymore. And then you go into talking about the history of what's gone on over the last 40 years and how amazing it is and how agriculture is developed. And glyphosate becomes a part of the conversation. But they have to understand there has to be context because glyphosate is just one piece of something. And I think that changing that point of entry on a conversation is really important. I think that's a big piece of it. Kami, that's kind of hard to fit in a tweet. Sorry, I I talk a lot. No, tried to tell that whole, you know, story, right? And I think, but that's one of those things that I've learned. Being on Twitter has helped me to be a better communicator. Can I sign my husband? No, my husband is signed up for Twitter. But can I make him become more concise? (laughs) Can I get him to fit in 280 characters? Well, it's 280 now. It was not 140. Some characters don't fit into 280 characters but I'd like to try. It's definitely, I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, it's, it's kind of like, okay, you're asking about GMOs, but are you really concerned about this? That's a good thing to work on recognizing. Well, and, and that's where asking questions because sometimes when someone comes at you and you don't know where it's coming from, you might start the conversation by having an argument that it's not even there, right? You might be defensive and that might not be where they're coming from. A lot of times it's just asking more questions and it's active listening. I think that, you know, we're so drawn to be in a world of black and white that when you get into these black and white conversations that there's no way to fight the black and white. Take it to the gray. Well, here's something, and I wanted to I wanted to bring this up today because I was hoping it would kind of enter in because it's related. But I was watching uh, Ellen's show on YouTube last night, and Krista Bell was on there, and her and a friend of hers are releasing a book in early June, and it's called "The World Needs More Purple People," and it is about it's a children's book, and it's really she said we sit there, kids listen to our conversations, and they're always divisive, right? Like if you're having people and you know, you come from different political perspectives or whatever, or cultures or whatever. 
and they hear the divisiveness of a conversation, but where are they listening? Where are the common ground? Where's the points? I haven't read it yet, but I suspect that the purple is the, the red, the blue, and the coming together. And I think that we need to find ways to break down the barriers that we have between us because they're very arbitrary and they're man-made and push past our own biases. Because then I think we can engage, and this is where stakeholders can come together and really address complex problems and, you know, get to the bottom of this disinformation, too. In all things moderation, including moderation. That's Ben Franklin, right? I don't know, but it's great. Hey, Ryan, Google that. I I don't know moderation, especially in running, so. (laughs) Or beer. (laughs) Or beer. Awesome, Kami. Definitely enjoyed that. And so I'm going to be linking to um, your paper and some of the highlights of where you discuss this on social media. There's a podcast that kind of breaks this down for those that um, want to listen to a little bit more about the paper. Yeah, definitely will be sharing that. So where can we find you on social media if we want to ask you more questions? I am on, I have a public Facebook page, Cami D. Ryan, PhD. And then I have on Twitter, I am at Cami D. Ryan. And I'm on Instagram too. I think I'm more interesting on Instagram, but it's not very work-related stuff. It's other stuff, so. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks, Cami, for joining us tonight over a drink and definitely some good conversation that has our wheels turning on advocacy and how we can join those conversations and not just share the facts. Definitely. uh, Thank you for joining us this week. Look forward to even more conversations after this. Thank you so much, Cammie. Thank you for the invite. It's great.